You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 120 for Monday the 3rd of September 2018. And this is an episode which I recorded as the conclusion of my recent work with New Writing North. My guest today is Peter Mortimer, a poet, playwright, journalist and publisher who's lived in the northeast of England for more than 40 years. Many of his books and plays have been published and performed in the region. Peter is used to writing about difficult places. Against foreign office advice, he wandered round Yemen. He set up a children's theatre group in a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. And over one summer, walked the length of Britain with one dog and no money, dependent on the kindness of strangers to provide accommodation and food. He's the founder and editor of Iron Press, the independent press which has championed new quality writing since 1973. We met as part of the New Writing North digital project that I was involved with in May of this year, and Peter is such an interesting character I had to interview him for the podcast. When we chatted, I began by asking him how old he was when he realised that he wanted to write. I think when I realised properly, I was at university. I, I sort of grew up on a council estate, very non-artistic house. None of my family had any artistic talent at all. Um, worked in several jobs in Nottingham like when I left school. I got A-levels in, in languages. But I used to scribble little things, but I never thought, because nobody who came from that council estate would become a writer, you know, I didn't know anybody who really worked in the arts or anything. And then I had a big round with my dad, and uh, my brother had gone to university, and I applied, we were the first people of our estate to go to the university. I went to see him at university, and he, I thought, this is a nice life, there's loads of beautiful women around, I want to go to university. So I went to Sheffield, it was there when I, I started uh, writing poetry, and I, and I formed a, created a little poetry magazine there, and I realised that when I left university, I needed somehow to write, so I managed to get a job as a journalist on a small weekly paper in London, the Walthamstow Guardian, you know, and I worked there for two years, and uh, so I was writing for a living, but in a way, uh, journalism, journalism was great for me, actually, it taught me a lot of discipline, uh, it, taught, it taught me discipline on not word counts, deadlines, things like that. Also a lot of bad influences. But I came up here and then I worked on the uh, Newcastle Journal. I was a full-time writer for about eight, nine years, first as a news reporter, then the arts, film and theatre critic, and a uh, lovely job interviewing famous people. Uh, but I realised I'd, I'd set up Iron Magazine then in 73, uh, and that was taking up a lot of my time, and Iron Press. And after about nine years, I mean, as you all know well, journalism is an all-consuming uh, profession, and I just didn't have I just didn't have time to do all three. So somebody said, "So you gave up the only one that paid? My <laughs> <laughs> writer didn't pay. I impressed didn't pay. Journalism did have a fairly good salary because I was, you know, a feature writer and the arts feature writer. So I just gave up in, in in eighty. I thought, well, I've got to take the big leap. The journal wanted me to go part time rather than lose me in the said, but. Uh, no, I wanted to go part-time. They, did, they didn't do part-time. <laughs> uh, I said, no, we don't want any part-time. We want you sort of full-time or nothing. So I took a big leap. I was terrified and left work um, in, I think, 1881 with very little prospect of what I was going to earn me living. I just knew I had to pursue my own writing. But it was quite good because uh, the journal then asked me to do a weekly column because I'd done a regular column. So I, I did one for the journal. And the Northern Echo asked me if I'd do a freelance basis review some films and theatre for them on a weekly basis. That just gave me enough 
sort of under, keep me on the red line, and then I could concentrate on my own work. I'm really interested in what you say about um, aspirations in your earlier life, uh, because I know, uh, you know my brother was first-generation university in our family, and there was a feeling um, at those times from people who hadn't been to university that it was somehow unattainable in many ways, you know, that it yeah. was really something quite special to go to university. How did that broaden your horizons? Well, I think uh, university was one of the watersheds of my, one of the real epiphany times of my life. Uh, because I suddenly mixed with a whole different type of people I'd ever mixed with before. And my, my whole perspective changed really then. And I, I knew that I just couldn't go back. I mean, I'd done, you know, I'd been a trainee false teeth salesman and jobs like that before. And, and it, like, <laughs> I couldn't go back to that kind of thing. And I just knew, and I, you look back and it, you see a pattern afterwards, actually. And I realised that was a really important time. And I, I just knew that I had to somehow write for a living. Uh, and I wrote for the for the kind of newspaper at the university. I used to write pieces for them as well. And I thought, this is what I wanted to do. So I have to do this, yeah. So that was, I mean, that was a watershed moment. Another one was coming up here, I think. When I, cause I'd, but then I thought, well, I'd probably be a full-time journalist. And when I came up here and I got interested in meeting writers, I got interested in uh, Morden Tower, the Poetry Centre, and I went to live with Tom Picard and his wife Connie, who, was, who ran the Morden Tower, and I got to know a lot of writers, and then I set up Iron, and my whole life kind of changed. So one was university, but then when I was in London, I thought I'd probably be a career journalist, you know, until I retired, which is obviously a very nice life. When I came up here, it changed again, in a way, and I was only going to come up here for a year. I thought I'd go on a national then, and uh, I'm still here. <laughs> I'll get rid of me. <laughs> I'm interested also, I just want to dig into your influences before yeah. we get to the writing, because Sheffield, I'm just trying to think, when you were in Sheffield, it was Labour Council, wasn't it? And Because in Sheffield, you used to be able to go for miles for a penny on the buses and things, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, it that, was a Labour Council, yeah. yeah. And it had been and was for a long time, uh, wasn't it, I think? It was. like, I think um, also, I mean, I think when I grew up, because my dad, well, I grew up on a council estate, my dad had aspirations. He was, a, he was quite nouveau riche, and he set up his own business, and he, he moved off the council estate. And uh, he, he, you know, and he, he kind of, I think he looked down a bit on the council estate. Um, and I think he, and, and I was very under the influence of my dad at that time. And he was Tory. And I, I just was Tory without thinking about it. I think most people who are Tory don't think about it. And uh, later, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> later on, I started thinking of myself. I thought, well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure I'm Tory, you know. And, uh, and that was a kind of revelation for me as well. I, I started actually... I didn't actually think for myself at all till I was about 21. Till I went to university. I was 21 when I went to university. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't think, looking back, I don't think I thought for myself at all. Except, then, I accepted things. Oh, and also in London, you weren't, were you doing Fleet Street? Were you kind of, I mean, because you'd, you'd have been there. No, um, no, I was, I was, I was working in East, East London on a weekly paper. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But, but the papers were very different then. I mean, you know, we, we were absolutely. printed presses, you know, oh, no computers. Completely different industry, wasn't it? Absolutely different industry. I, you, you know, and um, I've worked on various papers, both full-time and freelance. But, I mean, that is all gone. It's a great pity to me because I'm a man of the printed word, and I still am. And, you know, I impress, uh, although uh, we put some books on, on Kindle and things. Uh, what I love is, is books, printed books. I mean, some of my books are on Kindle and Kindle. I have a clue how many people buy them or anything. I never look at them. I, it's not in my heart and soul. My heart and soul yeah. is printed books and you know, I like printed books. I mean, I like to see my own books, but also other people's. You know, I feel like a, as a publisher, a midwife, I help bring that. It's a great thrill to me to bring someone's work into fruition, especially if it's a new writer. 
because I know what that means, what that means to a writer. And also know I'm only going to publish the stuff I really think is good, you know. So um, it's a kind of longest journey with me and a writer before we get their book out. I always think that being a journalist is is just brilliant training for being a writer because when you know the pressure of a deadline, there's none of this, uh, you know, oh, lovey, I can't write today, I can't find the muse. <laughs> it's also, there's two things, Paul, I think. It's a deadline, which, you know, you can write the best piece in the world. If you don't get a deadline, it's not going in. Hmm. But also, if they say 500 words, you can write 700 words, the best in the world, 200 won't go in. You know, so... If the economy, although you don't normally get a deadline if you're writing a poem, also a word count, it does teach you to value words and not not overwrite. Now that's been a less for me. And I remember I remember because you, you tend to condense and condense when you when you look at things. I remember one famous writer said, "If I had longer, I would have made it shorter." <laughs> <laughs> that always stayed with me, you know, because I, I run quite a few workshops, writing workshops. And nearly always, you know, the next, the second version will be less than the first. I say, don't worry about the first, just get it all down. But then you start trimming it. It's a bit, it's a bit like a sculptor, you know, stone. And you start shaping it then. And But journalism does teach you some good things. It's also, you know, there's a lot of cynics in journalism. <laughs> I realised that was starting to rub off on me. <laughs> but if, you, if you're kind of consumed in it all the time. Um, but I'm very, I, I mean, I'm really indebted for my years in journalism. Uh, and I did freelance. I mean, I carried on doing freelance when I left for quite a while. But now there's very little paid freelance work around at all. You know, I can still do freelance. I still do. I do a column for Voice of the North online, but it's not paid. <laughs> <laughs> and I do theatre reviews for uh, British Theatre Guide. They're not paid either. You know? <laughs> so all that's gone. Yeah. I still write because I like writing. Well, yeah, absolutely. And what better reason uh, to write? You know, <laughs> I get so, right out, you know. Have, having been a journalist then, I'm interested to know, when when the kind of the formal writing for journalism, when did you start to move into something more creative? Did that start while you were a journalist, or did you kind of ditch the journalism before you moved forward? No, 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 the, the two intermingled. I mean, poetry, uh, like a lot of people do, you know, you, you go off on your own and write poems, etc. I'd, I'd done that of my own volition. I got interested in plays, which is my main momentum now, I'd say, through my friendship with C.P. Taylor, Cecil Taylor, the playwright, who was a Scottish playwright, but lived in the North East. was a big influence on me. And I got to know him very well and saw most of his plays. Uh, so that the two writers, I think, uh, Tony Harrison, the poet, who's a, a terrific poet, I went, when I first moved up here, I went to his workshops, and he had an enormous influence on me. And I suddenly saw poetry in a whole new way. And then I think Cecil Taylor, who, who died at the age of 53, uh, for writing plays. And the first play I wrote, I'd sent it to Cecil. I rang him. I said, would you look at me play? He said, yeah, send it me, Peter. And I sent it to him, and he, he died. He had pneumonia, a heart attack. He had a heart attack and got pneumonia. And his wife, Liz, said to me, his play, the play was on his desk in his shed. He wrote in the shed. And so I never know whether he read it or not. You know? Oh, no. I did get put on eventually. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's funny that you say about writing in a shed, uh, my my granddad, who 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 never got published, he used to write in a shed. And yeah, quite a lot of people do. Pages of typewritten, you know, of manuscripts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
and I'd love to know what happened to my granddad's, you know, because I'd, I'd, I'd love to get him because now he could be published. I used to write these books and they never got published. And, uh, a man from a working class background, you know, yeah. he was you know, aspiring above, you know, what yeah, people yeah. would have supported him for. And, and there must have been so many of those, wasn't there? But then, you oh, know, people no. thought they were overshooting all the time. No. I remember uh, William Bell, a writer, we, an ex-mine, he was 80. When Sid Chaplin, I don't know if you remember Sid Chaplin, the writer, he was a novelist, Sandy, I mean, he's been dead quite a while, and he, he rang me up and he said, I've, I've come across this manuscript, Pete, will you read it? And I re- he said, it's, it's all handwritten, scrawl. He said, it's fantastic, and it was just by this eight-year-old ex-miner from Eastern Coalfield. And it, it's the most evocative description of, of growing up in, uh, in that coalfield when he was a lad. You know, it's fantastic. And we published it, and he died. He died about three weeks later, and his his wife said he was just waiting. That's that was his life complete. Just wanted yes. that book, and he'd never written anything else. But this was a, a minor masterpiece. So that wow. was great. Someone like that, it would never normally have got published, really. No, it's 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 and it's so important that we hear those voices, isn't it? I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because no one else could have told that story apart from someone who'd been through it. You know, someone who'd been through, had lived in one of those villages, grown up in one of those, villages, worked in the mines, etc. Uh, so that was great, you know, and I valued that, being able to publish that book. Now, I, I had little skirmishes with playwriting when I was a teenager, so I, I, uh, it never, it never uh, came to anything. But, but you're, you're writing sort of poetry, you're writing books, you've written journalistic work and plays. These yeah. all have different disciplines. Um, yeah. You know, plays are a completely different thing. Um, so so why, why do you think you've been drawn to plays so much? What, what draws you to that kind of art form? Yeah, I think it was me being a fairly gregarious character. First play I wrote was for live theatre. It was a Christmas play. They asked, the, the, the play that Cecil read, I showed it live theatre, and they liked it, but they said it's got too many characters for us, we couldn't afford it. And they said, would you like to write a Christmas show for us? I said, I don't want to write a pantomime. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be a pantomime. So I wrote a show called Snow White and the Black Lagoon, which was kind of a bit of pantomime, a bit of Hollywood horror, you know. And uh, when that went out, I suddenly thought, it's a totally different world, like... You go out and you sit there and you watch your play and there's people, crowds of people watching what you've written. It's totally different to poetry. And I suddenly got hooked on that. Uh, And so, you know, I've now written about 30 plays, I suppose. And I still get hooked on that. I mean, I was hooked on that in Prague. I was hooked on it, you know, Sunday night when we did our last performance here. I love nothing more than sitting in in a small audience, seeing people respond to what I've written. I mean, that's a big buzz for me. It doesn't get better than that, really. Uh, I mean, I've had radio plays on, but they're not the same because I sit there with the radio thinking, oh, well, maybe there's four million people listening to this, but it's like, I can't see any of them. Yeah. So it's a much bigger buzz if I'm sitting in a small audience, 30 people maybe. So that carries on. I've never lost that, really, that kind of buzz. I, as I say, as a teenager, I used to love, I used to love theatre. I used yeah, to go to all know. the travelling theatre at school. I used to love it. You wrote, you wrote some plays. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I tried writing them, and the Drama Society would do them, and things like that. So it was one of my early writing experiences, which actually I I completely forgot about until till you and I. What happened to that? Why did you give up? Well, I used to act in them. I did. I went up to degree level. I did theatre studies to degree level, and I was the most appalling uh, Reverend Samuel Paris in the Crucible that you've ever seen. <laughs> one of my favourite plays. Yeah. Well, mine ought to be never seen you in it. But I'd have put you off it, Peter. <laughs> I wasn't born fracked in Peter. <laughs> you, a man has to know his limits, and those are the limits. Had to ruin Arthur Miller. <laughs> well, Reverend Samuel Paris, he's, if I remember, he's first on, and he has to start 
crying. He's crying over his daughter, if I remember rightly. This is years. And so, yeah. And for a bad actor, that's like zero to a hundred miles per hour. Tears. Uh, and and I said to him, I wanted to be somebody else in the play, um, with a, a, you know, with a minor part, Thomas somebody. And yeah. I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not Samuel Paris material. And um, so it wasn't a good start, you know, with a, with bad sobbing to start the play. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I moved on swiftly at that point. Please. Right on, right on. <laughs> so, but but I, I, I love a good play. One of the things that's disappointed me was I um, used to see a lot of lovely traveling theatre. Mm. And it, it seems to me that theatre has been stripped to the bone in that you, you have actors having to do plays where they're playing like five people. I know, I think, I know. Like, and it's got a bit ridiculous, hasn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it does. I mean... You, I, I did a, the play I did Rainbird recently uh, about the, the North Shields painter of the tragic life, uh, Victor Noble Rainbird. It was a luxury because we managed to attract quite a lot of funding. We had a, a, a professional cast of 10. Now, that's almost unheard of these days. That's it, a movie. I, that's movie actors. That's, I know. That's amazing. You know, I mean, we just it, it was lucky. I mean, I put in a lot of funding applications. We managed to get about 25, 30 grand. It was a kind of 45 grand budget. Uh, and it was amazing to put on for a week. And, and normally uh, we don't, we can't use more than three or four, uh, the most, you know. And Prague was one. Yeah. <laughs> because Prague is very expensive. <laughs> so ten probably won't happen again in my life for me having ten actors. Yeah. Well, that's that's that is amazing. Um, I, I, you you mentioned a little bit earlier that you've got some radio plays done. So how how, how have they come about? Because that that feels quite prestigious. That's a bit posh, isn't it? Well, it was, it was uh, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of short ones, but one full length one, which was one I did for Durham Theatre Company, uh, just when I became a father, which was a bit of a shock to me because it wasn't expected. I kind of wrote a play about it called Elvis Lucy and Captain Sensible. So I thought that was the name of the play when I became a father. So. <laughs> <laughs> when it was done by Durham Theatre Company, it was actually uh, Elvis Lucy and Captain Beefheart. Yeah. BBC Radio 4 said, nobody's heard of Captain Beefheart. Call it Captain Sensible. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, that, that was quite nice. And that, that, that it's, it's good to a radio play. It's still the biggest uh, producer of drama in the world, I think, BBC Radio. Were you at the Radio Theatre? Was it recorded yeah, in the Radio Theatre? Manchester. It was done in Manchester. And okay. they played it out two days. They recorded the play in two days. Yeah. And uh, also I said... Because my uh, Dylan's auntie, my son's auntie, was an actor, actress, and I said, "Could she play the mum?" Said, "Well, bring her down, yeah." And she, you know, it was nice. So there's a family connection. She played the mum, and we go down for two days, record it. It's all done in two days. That's a great thing. Wow. Uh, you know, sometimes I mean, my partner Kitty Fitzgerald, she's she's had uh, several several radio plays on her. She's had people like uh, Christopher Eccleston, uh, Julie Christie, because often they can do two days. Whereas we asked ask them to do a month, well, you couldn't afford them for a month, for two days. So I, I do like radio, actually, the radio drama. Yeah. It's also, as people say, it's the pictures. <laughs> Why do you like radio? It's the pictures in your mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it, it is, though. It, it's like reading a book, though, uh, uh, radio, in that you, because it's not all given for you, you can you can just, it just allows the imagination to expand into. It's a process, I think. Yeah. <laughs> got that screen or whatever you know because you've, you've just got the sound you've just got the sound and then your own imagination which is great yeah so you've you've written three what are described as extreme books and i, I really want to five or six now actually oh is it more is it so it's, you need to update your 
your bio gone, your site. Come on, man. Oh, yeah, sorry. We've just done this digital work. It's <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, yeah, I've done, I think I've done five, well, it's five actually. I think of those what you call extreme books. Yeah, well, uh, these are just these are just brilliant projects. We've got to talk about these. So, um, the last of the hunters, you spent six months working as a fisherman in the yeah. North Sea. Now, um, I, I used to work for the BBC Round Hull, which had you know we we were doing about the gall and the trawlers. Yeah, yeah. So I I know a lot about this. It's a hard 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 life isn't it at sea yeah. uh, and a dangerous life at sea oh, as well terribly, terribly dangerous yeah so so this was you did this kind of like it's almost like it sounds like a journalistic project you did it for the sake of the book did you well it was a writer in residence with the north shields fishing community and when i applied for it and they gave it me and nobody expected me to go out to sea i spent the first week and a half interviewing people on shore and then i thought i'm a writer where it happens is out there so I went to the Fishermen's Association. I said, I want to go out to sea. He said, you don't want to go out there. I said, I don't want to, but I think I should, you know. Anyway, they tried to persuade me out of it. I said, no, I need to go. So I sailed on six boats over the six months, you know, all different types of trawlers, anchor bashers, uh, pair trawlers, all, all kinds of things. And uh, and that's the book. The book is made six chapters each one of each ship I went on each boat, plus other things like I wrote about the onshore community and stuff like that. But it's mainly the, the account of those journeys. And that was, it was, it was a terribly psychologically, I mean, being out there, I used to hate it. Paul. You know, when it was time to go out the next trip, I thought, oh God, I hope the weather's bad and we can't go. <laughs> it's terribly harsh life, terribly harsh life. And they're hard men. I mean, I respected them, but the hard men and they, they originally I had to get, Past that thing, I thought I was an arty forty softy, which I suppose I am to them. But you know, I had to try and combat that as well with them, and because I was sort of bored with them in this very small space, in a huge space, sort of the sea, you know, for maybe eight nine days, Spartan, absolutely Spartan conditions. Sometimes no washing facilities or anything, you know. So I mean, sort of, I said in the book, I said, you know, these conditions wouldn't be have been tolerated on land for maybe 150 years, but it's we don't see them; they're invisible, you know. Out they go. And on the small boats, very little legislation on, uh, on safety or anything. You know, it's uh, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. But I'm really glad I did it. And I uh, really I thought I would never eat fish and chips the same again. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So I still, I still see some of those fishermen occasionally. You know, and uh, it's very strange. I mean, North Shields only two miles, two and a half miles from me, but totally different world, the world of the fishermen. And then... So, you're a real glutton for punishment because in, in Broke Through Britain, I mean, these are just, these are brilliant projects. This is described as one man's penniless odyssey. Uh, and this was in 1999 when you did, uh, or you made a 540 mile journey from Plymouth to Edinburgh without a penny in your pocket. I mean, that, that is a brilliant, it's a brilliant project. I just came to me one night, in the middle of the night, I woke up, I thought, what if I could do a huge long journey without any money? And that, you know, it took hold. I then had to find a publisher. I managed to find a publisher, Mainstream. And uh, and then I just had to set up. And I went down to Plymouth. Uh, I booked Ben Breakfast in Plymouth my first night. Took a little dog with me. And then I was on my own. Well, I'm, I'm, I have these wild ideas. That are good, great ideas, but I am very rarely prepare them well enough. You know, so I, I went the wrong way to start with, coming out of Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> When you walk in 540 miles, Peter, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I realised the end of my first day, I said, why did they go up that road? <laughs> I mean, I was ready to give up. I was, I was actually, I did 60 miles the first day, my feet were killing me. I was absolutely knackered. 
Um, it was in Tavistock. It was raining. Nobody had given me any shelter. I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? I was already then in my 50s. I thought, what am I doing? I'm stupid. Go home. I did decide to go home. A dog seemed ill. And then uh, a curate put, took me in. Uh, and I went to sleep that night saying, tomorrow morning I'll borrow his phone. I'll ring up. I'll get him to send me a rail ticket down. I woke up and it was sunny and the dog seemed better. And I thought, Christ, you've been six months planning this. You're going home after one day. Just keep going. One day at a time. So I had to just keep going. If I even thought like I had 380 miles ahead, you know, I would have despaired. So I just thought, just keep going one day at a time. And I did, you know. And uh, I, I was sort of, I had to go to three chiropodists. My feet were killing me. I was laid up for three days in the Welsh borders. Uh, I'd be feet all bandaged up like the Egyptian mummy. You know, and... Uh, but I, I saw it through, actually. I saw it through. And by the time I got to Edinburgh, I was kind of, I'd lost half a stone. And the first day I struggled to do 16 miles, I think, all day. The last day, I, I just I did 16 miles, turned up at the, the pub and said, if you come up here, if you come to us, finish with us, we'll, we'll take you out for lunch. So they took me out for lunch, posh restaurant. There's me being on the road for 28 days. You know? I had everything on the table. <laughs> everything, everything they left, I just had to <laughs> And they got me a ticket back to uh, Tyneside. But that that was my best-selling book, still is, actually. And, I mean, that summer I was on lots of television shows and radio shows and lots of – because it caught people's imagination. It's such a simple idea, but in a way such a good idea. It was such a challenging idea. So I still get letters about that book, even though it's mainstream now been bought out by a random house and the, and, and the book's no longer in print, you know. But I still get letters about that, and I've got stats of mail about it. People have written and said what it's meant to them, you know, what there's not just a physical thing, but the mental thing. And because I talk about that, you know, and also that being deprived of, of what we take for granted. I mean, we're normal. We're never really hungry. Any of us, you know, we're, we're peckish. We're not hungry. But to be hungry day after day and then you get a, a sandwich and you're still hungry and you go to bed hungry and you get up hungry. It's quite sobering, actually. It's a big effect on me, actually. That thinking this is how half the world lives, you know, and we just take things for granted. So there's that psychological thing. As well as the physical, I'm knackered, <laughs> you know, knackered as well. Yeah. And I had to sleep. I don't want to give me a bed. Would you give a bloody some stuffy geezer a bed if you turned up with your dogs and I don't have any money? So I only slept in about four beds. But I slept in, you know, I slept in barns. I, I, I slept in shop, one shop window. You know, someone put me up in a shop window. <laughs> I slept in the cricket pavilion and uh, various other places. You know, but not, there wasn't much luxury in that. And, and, of course, then I had to get up. And I was trying to cover 20 miles a day, trying to write 2,000 words a day uh, for the first draft of the book. So I thought, I've got to write on the road, first draft. There's no point just trying to write from nothing when I get back. So I was sort of disciplined to write 2,000 words a day. So it was quite demanding day after day. I had to really psych myself up, you know, sometimes to do this. It's a brilliant but, project. I, I think that's what Forrest Gump did, didn't he? Yeah, something like that. I didn't make a film about me, though. <laughs> you didn't have loads of people running after you like Forrest Gump did. So. The thing was, Paul, I was anonymous and I was deliberate. I mean, people didn't know me. I mean, some people have done it with celebrities, mm. done that kind of thing. Usually not with no money, but sort of long walks. But it's different if you're a celebrity, you know, mm. because when I knocked on doors, people had to clue who I was. And normally they'd shut the door after I'd done my spiel. And as soon as I said I got no money, they'd shut the door. I didn't want people said, did you get publicity before? And I said, no, I didn't want any publicity before. And, you know, and I didn't, so, and en route, I just have to say, I was a writer and I was doing this. I was trying to do it without money. And there's any way that could help me. I, 
a lot of time they'd give, they'd give something to the dog, not give me anything, they'd oh. give something to the dog. Ended up with this bloody great fat dog and me like a rake. <laughs> Do you think, Peter, that would be different, um, you know, with the internet now? Do you think yeah. that's the kind of thing that it would be It would be different if you did it now? That it's the sort of... It would. It probably hmm. would, because that would have a, an effect on it. The internet was just coming in. I remember one of the places I stopped, and uh, they t- the guy took me in, and he t- says, oh, I'm on, I'm on the internet. Not many people were. He says, are you on the internet? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll look you up. And he found me. Found right. I said, I'm on the internet. Wow. I was only a little bit, you know, but I was quite pleased. <laughs> well and I didn't really know much about the internet then at all, you know. I don't know, actually. I was, I was just going to say, what's... Something <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the wrong person to claim to me that you're an idiot. <laughs> but I, anyway, it was, a, it was an important book, and I was quite proud of it, you yeah. know. I was quite proud of it. It's an, ama- it's an amazing project. and the I mean, the Holy Island um, project, to 100 Days on Holy Island, A Writer's Exile... Yeah. Um, this, these are just brilliant projects, Peter. Oh, thank you very much. Well, that was interesting. I mean, I was there with Kitty, my, still my partner. Uh, she's a writer, you know, one winter and, and very quiet and holy under winter. And I just, and I said, I'd be interested to live here on the winter, you know, and just live, see how the islanders live rather than write about its history, its religion, which everybody does about holy and And this, this, this title came to me 100 Days on Holy Island. I said, I'm going to write a book called 100 Days on Holy Island. I'm going to do it next winter, you know. And that's what it was. And it's very few than 100 people there in winter. Very enclosed society. A lot of them didn't want me at all. I'm pretty loud-mouthed and, you know, conspicuous. And a lot of them are very hostile to me. Some were. Some were very helpful, but some were. And it was quite it was quite a difficult uh, 100 days, you know. I mean, that's all in the book. I'm quite frank about it all in the book, you know, part of the experience. But I definitely wanted to write a book. I thought, nobody writes. Everybody goes to Holy Island. They make uh, they make a film about the history of Holy Island, the religious aspects of Holy Island. Nobody actually says, what's it like now? So I thought, so I did, a, at the start of the book, I did a two-page potted history. I said, this is the history of Holy Island. Right, that's all you get history-wise. From now on, it's the 100 days. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> it was a diary day after day. Is, uh, it's Lindisfarne, isn't it? Is it where the, is it where the Vikings came? Is that yeah, is yeah. yeah, yeah, the Vikings came and pillaged and things. And that's where Cuthbert's bones were. Because Cuthbert, uh, the statue of Cuthbert, then they they took when the Vikings came, they took Cuthbert's uh, coffin away so they wouldn't pillage it. They end up after this long journey in Durham Cathedral. You know that's how Cuthbert ended up in Durham Cathedral. So it is, it is a very holy place, but for the people who live there day to day, they don't think of it as a holy place, really. They just think it's where they live. But it's very small. And the smaller the place you live in, the smaller the island, the more, in a way, insular. And in fact, it was insular sacra was the Roman name for Holy Island, which means sacred island. Uh, so you see, the word insular suggests an island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had some good friends on there, but I had some people who just I knew would never like me. And the God Squad, there's, there's the God Squad and there's the indigenous ones. Uh, and as the incomers, uh, now the incomers were fine with me, and the God Squad were fine with me. But the, the indigenous were very wary of me, very mistrustful of me. Most of them, you know, and I just had to accept that. Really, these um, extreme books. You see, uh, you're, you're saying as an author, but I, I see these as journalistic works. Interesting. Yeah, they they're a mixture. Yes. Well, you're right. They're a mixture of journalism and literature. And I think that's why I like them because I'm a mixture of journalism and literature. Because they are, you know, when I'm there on any of these, I, I do a first draft. And that's journalism in a way. 
But then I do maybe two more drafts over the next three or four months, which tries to get a bit deeper than journalism as well. I love journalism, but, you know, to try and uh, uh, how I'm actually responding to that and what my thoughts are, rather than just the linear narrative. The first draft is tend to be the linear na- narrative and what's happening to me. And then it's how do I respond to that thing, you know, and what are my uh, second, secondary thoughts about that rather than just it's happening. So it is a mixture. It's a mixture of journalism and, uh, and literature, yeah. What were the other extreme books then? I mean, I can't imagine anything, you know, more uninviting than those three. What, what else did you add to that? Well, I, wrote a, I, I was asked to write a play for the Customs House in South Shields about a riot I'd never heard of, a Yemeni Siemens riot in 1930 in South Shields. And uh, I, it's nice if we get a commission, you know, but I, I said I know nothing about it. So I started looking into it and I thought, right, um, I need to go to Yemen. So I... Uh, I said, I said to the customer, I said, I need to go to Yemen. I'm going to try and get a travel award to go to Yemen. And I wrote to the foreign office and they said, we advise nobody to go to Yemen. It's too dangerous. And, uh, and they said, and if anyone does go to Yemen, on no account go outside the big cities. So anyway, I knew that all the seamen who come from Yemen to South Shields, uh, it was after, during the First World War and after bringing in lots of manpower, um, had lived up in the remote mountain villages. So I thought, well, I want to go up into the remote mountain villages. So I went up into the remote mountain villages, got myself an interpreter when I over there, and sort of just went off to these remote mountain villages, you know, where the foreign officer said, I know I can't go outside the big cities. And people, the Yemeni people are the kindest, most generous people I ever know. And I remember when I came back, people saying, well, you're not frightened going off into these remote Arabic places. I said, I'm much more frightened in the big market on the Saturday night. Yeah, really? That's interesting. Yeah. And now, I mean, they treated, you know, I'd arrive in these remote villages and they'd put on banquets for me and everything. And, I, I, you know, just, just simple, just all the village elders had come and, and whatever. They gave me presents. These are, these, this is the poorest Arab country in the world, you know, and in these remote villages. And then the sheikh, I'd meet the sheikh, you know. I remember I had my interpreter and he asked him when I was leaving. And I said, what's he want? He said, he wants to know if you're all right for money. Could have done with that when you were in Plymouth, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, now you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, an extraordinary country, you know. And I wrote, and, and originally I thought I was just going to get the feel of it, but I wrote a book called Cool for Cat. Cat is the uh, the, the the leaf they chew. It's a kind of drug, you know, that, but it gives them kind of energy. And uh, QAT. And I did a cat session last about six hours. They chew and chew big bulging oh. shit. So I did various cat sessions right there, in the course of research, of course. Of course. <laughs> so the book is called Call for Cat, which was a squeeze, a squeeze uh, track, I think. Years right, yeah. Time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and that was, that was a kind of quite interesting book. Yeah, and it was just three weeks trogging tr- around Yemen, really. Found out a lot about Yemen. And also time in a, in a refugee camp in Beirut as yeah, well. Camp Zidila, yeah, where I wrote... Um, a friend of mine went as a teacher with a group for a week te- teaching the school. Once she came back, she was showing me all the photos. I thought, don't know anything about these places. So I said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and live there, and I'm going to write a book about it. So I managed to find a charity who would take me there. I didn't know anything about I thought, and again, I was advised not to go anywhere near a refugee camp. So I managed to go to a charity who said to get me in, get me a makeshift room to sleep in. And when I went, I thought, I want to do something as a writer, I want to do something. I vowed I would write a play with the children of the camp. I had no idea I was going to do that, you know. But I did that, and we put it on the last day I was there. Put it on, 
no, none of the people on the camp had ever been to the theatre. None of the, they'd never done theatre, these kids or anything. But we did the play, put it on, everybody came and watched it. I was so proud of it. And I remember I said, I said to uh, the teacher, I said, I'd love to take them to England, you know. And after the thing, they all came running up and said, Mr. Peter, Mr. Peter, when we go to England, when we go to England. So I thought, right, we've got to go to England. So I spent the next year raising 30 grand and writing the book. And we brought them to England. And they performed at the Sage. Wow. And they performed at different places. They went and went all over. In fact, we did three projects for that camp then. Uh, went back and we took, I took a full team to do a more advanced version. And we brought that back. And that went to uh, Liverpool. It went to Edinburgh. Went all over the northeast. And these kids who've never been off the camp, 16 of them, no, 12 kids and four teachers. I mean, I don't know what it's like for them to come and perform places like the Sage, the Children's uh, Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh. You know, it's fantastic, really. I mean, all when the Syrian thing, when the whole Syrian catastrophe happened and all the camps were flooded with, you know, refugees, it all became chaotic. So not been able to do anything in that camp since. But there were remarkable projects, and I, I, I loved doing them, and there were quite a few people involved, rather than me. But it all started with that visit, you know, that two months on the camp. Um, and, yeah, I, don't, I occasionally get things on Facebook from them, and they're all, they're all about 13 then. They're all grown up now, of course. This was, I think I first went 10 years ago, my first visit, and then it was over about four years to five years till about uh, 2013, 14, I think. I think then the thing with Syria happened and it's been impossible since, you know. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> there you Fantastic. go. No, that's an amazing series of, of books. I, I got to talk to you about one more, you know. Oh, what's, oh go on. What's that one? Well, the chess, like, impossible, this. A chess Traveller, which was published last year, where I decided <clears throat> I decided I was going to do a totally random journey. Uh, and I got my, I got Kitty to throw a dart blindfold at uh, a map of Great Britain, wherever it landed. I would go, and at that place, I would find someone to play me at chess. I would go on a bike, and when I play them at chess, they had to send me somewhere else within 30 miles. It was their choice where they sent me. When I got to this place, I had to get someone else to play me at chess. Likewise, they had to send me on. So um, she threw the dart, and it landed in Lossiemouth, which is 300 bloody miles north of here. <laughs> did, did I say a bike? Oh, damn. <laughs> well, I, I thought, I'm going to see, I'm going to get the bike. Uh, I'm going to get the train up as far as I can because I don't have bike through to Albany Knacker to start with. <laughs> but then I had to come all the way down through the Cairngorms and everything, you know. Uh, and it's like three weeks. I did about 450 miles, played 14 games of chess, and wrote. And the book is the, the journey with people I met, the games of chess. So it's a kind of combination, you know. Um, so that was that was my last. Uh, well, my latest. Hopefully not my last. No, I'm knocking on a bit now. Uh, <laughs> That was out last summer. So. Now, this is usually a rude question to ask, but I, I want I want to ask it. Um, well, you're a gentleman of a certain age. What? You said this before, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just I want to say that because that's it, that's really recent. I mean, that's a heck of a thing to do, Peter. I know it is. I know. What you're thinking of? I know it's ridiculous. You know, and I was up in, in bloody, the bloody Cairngorms. I've got I think five of the highest peaks in, in the UK. You know, and I thought, Christ, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to give that some age context, that's all. Yeah. Somebody listening to this might sort of say, well, this he sounds like a youthful gentleman. You know, he's 30-something maybe, 35. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I should have done. But, I mean, it was all right. I, 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 yeah, I wasn't going too mad. I mean, 30 would be the most I ever travelled, and often it was like 15, 20. 
Mm. But again, it was like quite tiring then finding someone to play at chess, you know, and playing the games. And I got quite, I, I mean, I'm just an average chess player, really. And I don't play very often. Most people don't when they get older. Mm. So I played 14 games in like 18 days. And uh, it was sending me mad chess. And I, I was getting obsessed with not losing. And when I started, I, I joined the chess. I thought it doesn't matter how many I win, how many I lose. They're just games. But I lost the third game and I became obsessed. I thought, I'm going to lose every one now. I'm going to be a laughing stock. So I became obsessed never to lose another game. Brilliant. <laughs> and, all that con- and I did think Bobby Fischer, the great chess player, went mad, the world champion, the American. And I thought, I got my anniversary, what he had. I thought, I am going mad. But one of the penultimate games, I think it was, I totally had colour blindness. I was saying, but do you play chess at all? Well, do you know the rules? Uh, yeah, yeah. I used to, again, yeah. I used to play when I was younger, but don't really play much now. Yeah, playing this youngish person, and after about six mi- moves, I suddenly thought he can make me in two moves. I can't do anything about it. And I was about a te- I just sweat standing off me around. And I was for about ten minutes. I was standing this board. And I suddenly thought, "You fool! It's, it's a white bishop you're looking at, not a black one." <laughs> <laughs> I thought you went mad. <laughs> but it's understandable with a project like that. I think we can forgive you. I know. Uh, anyway, that was the latest, the latest one. So well, they're brilliant. That's a, such a brilliant series of projects, and and actually, I can really see the journalists. Yeah, well, you can, can't you? There is definitely the journalist training in me in that. Yeah, yeah definitely. They really appeal to me. Those. I'm pleased you did them, but they really appeal to me. You know, as projects. <laughs> <laughs> well, get out and read them all. Boot sales. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. No, look, we've got to talk about Iron Press uh, yeah, because okay. this this is what you know a great uh, project. And, um, you know, it's really rooted in the north. Yeah. One of the things that I've been really pleased with with this podcast is, is that we've had so many northern voices on this yeah. podcast. And I feel really strongly about it. And, right. and I can tell you you feel strongly about the north. Yeah, yeah I do. The Iron Press. So t- tell us where this, you know, came from and what it's achieved over the years. Well, I mentioned earlier I was with the poet Tom Pickard and his wife. I was living with them. And I used to go to Morden Tower and I was really interested in poetry. And... Uh, me and Connie one night, we were sat up late, chatted. I think we, had, we might have had a drink or certain combustible substance. I don't know. Anyway, I said, should start a poetry magazine. So we were both going to start it. And then when we started talking editorially, we were very different. So she, I said, well, I'll start one. You start one if you want. And she said, well, I'm not going to start one. You can start <laughs> But So the first iron came in 1973. And uh, I think we did something like 60 copies. I paid for it myself. Uh, and we had it printed in Manchester, and I drove down in my old Land Rover to get it, and I gave most of them away. But Connie very kindly gave me an article by Allen Ginsberg about reading at Morden Tower, you know, the great American poet, which was the first thing in the first eye, and it was great, and Ginsberg at the Tower. Uh, and I st- then it was all, it was, this was pre-new technology. It was like, I had to set everything myself. I bought electric typewriter, I set it all. All the letter set, all, all the headings. Do you remember letter set? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I'm not. I know I look very youthful, Peter, but um, I, I used to write my plays on a typewriter. You know, I've used okay, letter sets. So no I've yeah. done it all. Yeah, I've done it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, every heading was done in letter set. Every mistake, I had to then type a line, strip it in with cow gum. You know, so <laughs> so the first few editions of Iron Magazine were like that. I had no idea how long it would go on for. In fact, it ran for eighty-three magazines. You know, till ninety-seven. And in that was '73, and then not, the Arts Council, Northern Arts as was, gave me a grant, you know, and uh, they carried on funding it. And, and I think two years later, I started doing books as well, Iron Press books, 
Um, I think it was Cecil Taylor actually asked me, would, I, would we be willing to do three short Northeast plays? That's another thing that got me into writing plays, that's right. So we did these three short plays and live theatre uh, premiered them at the old Gulbenkian studio. And we sold them, we did 500 copies of the book, we sold them all during the week. You know, all those playwrights are dead now. But at our first Iron Festival in 2013, we put on two of those plays, you know, as a kind of memory, yeah. So, um, and that's what started, and then I say, I, we, we ran, Iron ran every quarter for 82, 83 editions. Uh, and it was quite a well-respected magazine. It had a very good policy. Everybody got a response to the work. So long as they stuck stuck to our levels of how much to send in, I mean, most magazines just send a, a kind of you know rejection slip. We never sent rejection slip. We always said why, even though it might have been brief, why we couldn't take it. Um, so that, you know that was like sort of be seventy submissions a week. So that was quite a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of work. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. It all matters. But, but worth it, you know. And other people, I was the editor, but other people helped me as well. We had an art editor, reviews editor, you know. So um, and it was very visual magazine as well. Uh, I thought we don't want just uh, most poetry magazines just page after page after page of poetry. I thought who was the general public going to pick it up? So I had an art editor was important and a lot of visuals of the poems. Um, so it's quite a striking looking magazine. Um, and I've got, of course, we got copies of all. I think I think there's probably three full collections. The Robinson Library bought the Iron Press archive recently, so they bought all the back copies of the magazine, every one about two hundred odd books or whatever, you know. So, which is really nice, and we supply them with all our new books. Uh, so, you can, anybody who wants to go and see the whole history of Iron can go to the, the university, Newcastle University, and go to the Robinson Library. So, yeah, Iron was, well, it's still going, obviously, as a press. I, I say I gave up the magazine because running both together was too much. But the year I gave up the magazine, I formed Cloud Nine Theatre Company. That was bloody glutton for punishment. So, I gave magazine early year, halfway through, I thought I'll set up a theatre company. So that's still going. That's 20 years old now. So. Wow. And let's talk about the theatre company because that's, you've just come back from an, a, an amazing trip. I mean, you know, you're yeah. doing, well, and you're completely embroiled in all of this, aren't you? Which is yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, Cloud Nine, we set it up. Originally it was community theatre and we, we did a play. Uh, I just worked with a lot of people putting together a play, put, put out now at the community centre, put out some publicity, anybody interested in creating a play. And I acted as a writer, but we all talked about ideas and everything. Each week I would go away, write it up and bring it back. And we put on a play and put it at the community centre. And I had no idea what would happen then. Uh, and that was called The Trip. And that was the first play. And it went down very well. And it just grew from that. And then it, 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 it evolved. And we ran a 60s group for people over 60. And then we started doing professional work as well. And, um, you know, we've used about 20, 24 writers in that, in that time. Uh, I write a lot of it because uh, they get it cheaper if I write it. <laughs> 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 but other people write as well. And I say it's our 20th anniversary this year, so we've got a kind of, at the end of the year, we've got a special celebration, rather a special celebration at the Exchange, which is now where we do a lot of our work at North Shield, you know, the theatre there. So that's been good. And it's all, the thing about it, it's all new work. We don't do any kind of adaptations or Shakespeare or classics or anything like that. It's all new work. It's all commissioned and it's all from Northern writers. So we only commission from Northern writers. And we also try and use Northern actors. We try not to bring people in from London or anything, you know. We like to 
trying to work the people up here. That, well, it's brilliant. And, and it's funny, uh, we, you and I um, met and have been working together for the New Writing North uh, yeah. project which is you know which is a, which is a digital project and, and and it's been really interesting because you know i'm i'm kind of like the new generation of flash areas who do everything online and computers and things yeah. like that and, and, but, but no but, but no you're but you're you know you're you're doing things the way things used to be but actually we're both trying to do the same sort of thing uh, and i do get people who, who are much more savvy than me but for, for iron and cloud nine who, who do that kind of thing for it you know obviously i can't live in a previous age, totally. Uh, but I know that I can't consume myself with it too much. So, you know, I've got people around me. <laughs> Lead me through. Come on, old timer, this way. <laughs> but you see, you you've put uh, a huge amount into your community. You've you've you know brought on a lot of northern talent. You've given them a voice, you know, where they might not have done. And you've yeah. you've done that because of your. Um, passion and I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about things like so for instance self-publishing you were talking about the minor earlier on who, who would never have found a voice well that was before in those days whereas whereas now that you know everybody can find a voice in self-publishing yeah, yeah. when you look at your kind of you know time in publishing you see massive changes do you, yeah, do you think it, is it is it better now uh, you yeah. know or, or worse do you think I think I think it's mixed actually Paul it, it, it has changed obviously the publisher especially we've had to change because we've gone through all that revolution, you know, like you were saying, I, mean, I was using a typewriter to start with, so I impress has gone through all of that. Um, I think self-publishing is great, and I've learned quite a bit from you about it, the more sophisticated side of it, I think. Well, that's good, because they've paid my invoice now, so it's a good job you learned something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I think it's great, because it means anyone can get the book out there, and I think that's great, and... Uh, there's also the other side. I find when people do approach me, most writers also do like having a kind of, if they get a published book. Well, a lot of them I deal with. But you've shown me that how someone like you is an established writer. You know, there's not that stigma. With a lot of, it's changed a lot. And I didn't. I learned that through you, I think. But now there's a lot of, very lot of established writers who self-publish because of the collapse, in a way, of the publishing industry in some ways. And just think, sorry, I'm going to do it. Of course, a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people who send me the books who have, really, it's not very good writing, you know. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's what happens. That's what happens, really, I know. And a lot of, and, and, and people then, I know, digitally publishing digitally as well or online. But like I say, I like I like books. You know, I do like books. I mean, we have to be in the digital age, so we have to be on. We have to publish digitally as well. But I love an actual book. And if people, I mean, a lot of people ring me. I say, just publish it yourself. They say, oh, I've written my autobiography, blah blah. And I say, well, unless you're famous or infamous or there's some enormously interesting story, you're only going to sell a few copies. Publish it yourself. Print on demand. Mm. You know, your, your friends and family can have it. It's a great thing for them to have. And why not? And that couldn't happen before. So I think that's great. So there's different sides of self-publishing. There's your side, there's a professional, very professional side. But then there's somebody who's maybe written one book and they think, I'd like to leave this to my, I'd, I'd like my family and friends to see it. And they can self-publish. I'm just going to do, I'm going to lean over. Shall be a minute? I'm going to disappear right. off the camera. I just need to get some props. Just excuse me a moment. Because <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll keep talking, but um, I just want to show right. something, uh, which I hope will reassure you. Uh, let me just show you. Whoops. Right, hang on, I'm coming back. I shouldn't really have done this on a on a live recording, but I wanted to do it. Right. Just I just want to hold these up to the camera. 
and for okay. those for, right for those of you these are my books peter so i still get paperbacks and they're all on my shelves i know uh, and i because i still think that you need to provide so i do i do self-publish but i got i got paperbacks of everything and make those available so i, I think that's really important but as a writer there is nothing like seeing those books all lined up on your shelf absolutely, absolutely. i agree i agree and you sell a lot of books <laughs> huge excitement at that so yeah no, well, yeah I, I mean that never goes you know that never goes and it never will go really but you're um, you're clearly very passionate about all of this you, you've had an amazing life in the arts in writing you know in everything that you've done so um at, at the age of 74 you know, a lot of us will listen to this. Terrible, isn't it? <laughs> I would, I would look. I hope I've got your passion for it when I'm 74. So, you know, because I, I think many people listening to this will say, "I hope I'm like that when I'm 74." You know, still going, producing, play, and loving every minute of this. So, what, what's the secret to that? Because you've you've just had such an eclectic career, haven't you? It's been amazing. I, I don't know. I just Kitty says, "Well, it's your strength and weakness." That's my point. Says you have to, you have to, you have to fill every minute. You always like, why don't you just slow down a bit and just relax a bit? Just why do you have to fill every minute? I said, "I don't know. It's just the way I am." You know, there's there's always because I live here. I'm, I'm a writer. Uh, Cloud Nine. This is its center. Like Iron Press is its center. So the house is kind of a vibrant thing of you know creativity and whatever. Uh, I've got a, a, a musician who lives here, so it's a very creative house, you know. And the house—you haven't seen my house, but my house is kind of uh, quite an unusual house, you know. It's the Heritage Lottery asked if I'd open it up for the public at Heritage Lottery Day and the open day, because the whole house is full of artwork, everything. Wow! It's, you know, over forty years, it's gone every room, uh, murals and all sorts. So that's the kind of statement of me. In the front, you know, the front is like all the front is very colourful. People say, what number do you live at? I said, don't worry about number. (laughs) (laughs) Don't need to know the number. (laughs) That's brilliant. So what what projects have you still got in you then? Are we going to get another extreme book? You know, can we squeeze another one of those out? I'd like to think so. I mean, you know, with them, the the ideas come or they don't come. And I'm impatient with myself now because I'm thinking, come on. There should be another one coming up in the middle of the night now somewhere. So I don't have I don't have another book. I mean, I've got a couple of plays I'm, I'm trying to write at the moment. But I could do with another book. I mean, the thing is, the cycling one, because cycling, I realised my knees wouldn't have done Broke Through Britain now, you know, that was 20 years ago. Cycling one was fine. You know, it was fine. It was knackering, but it was it was okay. So I, 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 I could, I, I'm restless for an idea for another book like that, yeah. Uh Maybe talking to you will inspire me and I'll go away and in the middle of the night wake up, that's it! <laughs> well, look, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed working with you on this project, Peter. Yes, I've had fun. It's been good fun. We've had a great laugh, haven't we? You've been gentle with me. And, <laughs> and, of me. Yeah. And, and I've really, I'm so pleased that we did this as our final session because... Oh, my, it was a great idea. It was your idea. So I thought, shit, what's he going to do with me? <laughs> well, it's... It's it's like and and I mean this in a good way. It's like no interview I've done, uh, you know, for the podcast because I. But it, it's just really um, valuable to hear your story and how you've done things, creativity. And I've really enjoyed it. So thanks ever so much for joining oh, us. That's great. Podcast. Thanks, Paul. That's great. I was thinking, Randy. I thought, oh, how are we going to? Before I knew you, you know, I thought, how are we going to handle this? Because I'm a bloody luddite. How are we going? But that <laughs> worked out brilliant. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> And that was Peter Mortimer, a poet, playwright, journalist and publisher from the northeast of England. And what a great time we've had working together during the New Writing North project. 
The next interview episode is going to be dropped into the podcast feed on Monday, the 1st of October, 2018. And after that, I'm going to be resuming service with more regular interviews after my summer break. Before that, though, I'll see you for Saturday's regular diary episode. That's going to be on the 8th of September, a Saturday. And until then, have a fabulous week of writing. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.